Largely speaking, as I travel around, most people are, we're living in fear of mission and evangelism. That which is the lifeblood, one of the lifebloods part of the church, something which people so willingly went out and laid down their life for, we now feel so fearful of and often hesitant even to step into that. And I think it's partly because as the culture shifts so quickly around us, we quickly feel so disorientated, we're not even sure how to say what we want to say anymore. It feels like everything's been redefined, everything's been changed, and everything that we say is so easily misunderstood or twisted against us. And we are living in incredibly challenging times. We are now living amongst one of the most lonely generations this world has ever known. In the UK, they recently appointed a minister, a government minister for loneliness. Sadly, they only appointed one, <laughs> which seems to be tragic in so many ways. But we are incredibly lonely as a generation. The more we, we are connected through technology, the more we realize that technology, far from breeding intimacy between us, seems to build a gulf instead. We have the technological means at our ends to achieve whatever ends we desire, but we haven't figured out what is actually desirable. And so for all of our talk about enhanced communication and connection, people are feeling increasingly disconnected. Now, I can't speak for this part of the world. Back in the UK earlier this uh, few months ago, the BBC published the results of an academic survey which showed that the number one problem for people between the ages of 14 and 24 was loneliness. One person who responded said, social media is just social fake. They said, every connection I have with anyone in this world is based on falseness. We're all pretending to be something that we're not. And this sense of disconnect and loneliness is spreading rapidly throughout the world with people increasingly spending time online rather than with each other. Even in northern Nigeria, where I was there last week, you can go to almost any cafe, no matter how rural, and you see the same situation that you see in London and, and no doubt Sydney too, people sitting drinking coffee, each with their phone out, nobody talking to each other, but completely locked into the te technology that they actually have in their hand. One very famous rapper recently put it like this. He said, the love is fake, but the pain is real. So many scars I simply cannot heal. And we feel utterly alone. Now, the trouble with this is then it leads then to a collapse of what we actually think about when it comes to terms of relationships. We're actually thinking about relationships in ways that we haven't in a very, very long time, certainly not in the way that we actually articulate them. There was a book called Purity, written by a, uh, an American author a few years ago by the name of Franzen. Now, Franzen only writes a book about once every two, three years or so, or maybe even less than that. He gives a lot of thought to his work, and when his books come out, they tend to win a lot of prizes. Purity was a book that split the critics. It tells the story of a woman whose nickname is Purity. But here's how the book starts out. She's working in a coffee shop and a customer comes in. She immediately likes the look of the customer and begins to wonder about having some kind of relationship with him. They strike up a casual conversation and as she's talking to him, this thought runs through her mind. She says to herself, dare I risk the intimacy of friendship? Or shall I retreat into the relative safety of casual sex? What a question. Dare I risk the intimacy of friendship where you can get hurt, betrayed? Or shall I simply retreat into the purely physical of casual sex where I can keep myself safe? Now just think about it. No one would have written that line 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the sexual side would have been seeing the risky bit. That's the dangerous part. Maybe that's where you're going to get hurt. Making friends with somebody is surely the best thing to do. But we're now so unused to relating to other people as human beings 
that even the idea of intimacy and friendship can feel threatening. So we are caught with this desire, this longing to be known to have intimate relationship and at the same time being terrified of it at the same time. And we're so terribly lonely as a result. Now the effect of all of this is to increasingly objectify us. As we look at people in purely sexual terms, in terms of beauty and physical fitness and everything else that we're so obsessed with in our current culture, as we look purely at the physical, we reduce people from people into objects. Now the tragedy with that is there's a big difference between the relationship between you and a person and the relationship between you and an object. An object is something which I consume for my pleasure. So the relationship between me and an object is one of consumption. But the relationship between you and another person is one of connection. You connect with someone. So even in the hippie movement of the 60s, as people were sleeping with anyone and anything, people constantly talked about making a connection. Whereas now, in a porn-dominated culture, we're only interested in consumption. We would use other people into objects and we consume them for some felt need, trying to meet this desire for intimacy within us and finding ourselves completely alone. We even talk of now marketing ourselves. We even train our students who are graduating from our universities how to market themselves, as if they were marketing a car. We're constantly losing sight of what it means to be human and reducing ourselves into objects. Is it any surprise, therefore, that we feel lonely? Because the, the nature of the relationship between you and an object isn't a personal one. Does that make sense? Look, I know there are men who comb their hair, look in the mirror every morning, sigh, and go, I'm in love. But that's sad. <laughs> you can't be in love with yourself or love your car. Love requires two personal beings at either end of the equation. But what do you do when the idea of a very person itself has been lost? So we're living in an incredibly lonely and also hurt generation because the thing about objects is you use an object for yourself. And at a subconscious level, I think that explains a lot of the anger that we see going on in the world right now. If, if in the Q&A I'd been asked the question, Michael, do you like working for the organization that employs you? And I were to say to you, I think they've been using me now for over 20 years. If that was my response to that question, you would all understand I'd said something very seriously wrong. I'm being used. None of us want to fall into that category. But subconsciously, by reducing everyone into an object around us, that's exactly what we're doing. Now, this then runs then into a series of other problems that we have as well. The amount of political cynicism in the world right now is reaching new highs in every country I go to. As a matter of fact, in the last two, three years, in the 80 or so different countries I've traveled in, east, west, north, south, political cynicism is one of the common staples of our culture. Leslie Newbegin, the, bishop, um, uh, the Anglican bishop, many years ago spotted this trend when he said what the trouble is is that we're all watching TV programs which are saturated and we watch people, impossibly beautiful people, living impossibly opulent lives and we assume it's normal. We then very quickly conclude it's the responsibility of the state and the government to provide it for us. When they don't, we feel disappointed. So the next group of incoming politicians promise something to their society they cannot deliver, happiness. They are the ones who will fulfill that dream for them. They're promising something which in the past we thought only God could deliver. Happiness, fulfillment, ultimate security. So they promise something which they can't deliver and then when they fail to deliver again, that level of cynicism grows and we're just locked in that cycle. Well, we've been through that cycle so many times now where some group of people are promising something which they can never ultimately deliver the levels of cynicism are an all-time high. 
Not that you in Australia would know anything about changing your political leadership regularly, but <laughs> in some parts of the world, our, our patience is, is now so short, we just can't wait for anything anymore. Now, this feeds off another problem, and really, all of these, every single one of these issues I'm outlining for you, if you wanted to go in depth, it would take, it would take me 45 minutes on each one to run through. But the next thing we then run into, which is also becoming a global problem, is we have a huge amount of economic cynicism in our cultures too. There was a very famous book written a couple of, de a couple of years ago by a French economist called Thomas Piketty entitled Capital. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried reading that book. If you haven't, you may want to think about buying it for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's 1,200 pages long in hardback edition. It looks very impressive on any bookshelf. <laughs> Number two, being that heavy in hardcover, you can also use it for personal defense. <laughs> and number three, the book is so large, when you die, they could actually bury you in it. <laughs> now, what Piketty says, although controversial at some points, but I think the heart of what he has to say is correct, is the rate of return on capital in global economies around the world has greatly outstripped the rate of return on income. What does that mean? That means if you're sat in this audience and you are what most people would call middle class and you have teenage kids, it means if you're in that category, the number one question you're wrestling with right now is will my children ever be able to afford to buy their own home? It means that in every single major metropolis around the world, house prices and capital appreciation has far outgrown the rate of growth of income, which means even if you get a decent job, you're going to be struggling to provide a family house. Now, this de deserves a huge amount of unpacking, but the result is you breed a generation that feels economically excluded from the political society of which it's a part. And when you start to have large swathes of a society feeling that somehow they cannot buy in to the economy of which they're a part, resentment and anger begins to grow. There's a growing sense of injustice and distrust, and historically it leads to civil war. So these problems are huge. And this growing sense of injustice is feeling a sense of global anger, which has been evidenced all around us right now. So big is this distrust and this cynicism that four days ago, a German think tank published the results of one of the largest political attitude surveys done in recent times. They surveyed, surveyed 125,000 people in over 50 different countries. One of the questions which they asked was, do you think your government acts in your best interests? And here's what's interesting. If you live in a democracy, because actually people in dictatorships are happier on this one. If you live in a democracy, the top 10 democratic systems in the world as listed by this think tank, 64% of the people said never. My government never or rarely acts in my interest. And if you want to know who these oppressive democratic countries are, the, right at the top of the list are Sweden, Denmark, and other countries like that. There is whole-scale, massive political disillusionment at every single level. Now, because we think our problems are man-made and therefore can be man-solved, the solution to all of these things is one of, being, is one of materialism. So we're constantly asking ourselves only one question, which is how can we actually make the level of wealth within our nation grow? Now, there's nothing wrong with a nation growing in terms of wealth, but when that's the solution to every problem that's presented to it, it's going to fall far short, and it quickly collapses into greed. Now, what I find interesting is that Jesus Christ warns us to watch out for greed more than any other sin in the New Testament. Now, you may ask me, Michael, how do you know that, and how do you make that last statement with such authority? And the answer is, I heard Tim Keller say that, and as the new Protestant Pope, I know I can trust him completely. <laughs> but 
But why on earth does Jesus Christ tell us to watch out for greed more than any other sin? And the answer is it's largely invisible to most of us. As someone famously said, it's hard to see the wall of your prison when the cell is made of glass. In other words, unlike adultery, which is very obvious, or murder, which is very obvious, do you know what I mean? I mean, no one sleeps with you know, another woman and then goes, ooh, that's not my wife. In my sense, you don't get confused on that. It's obvious to you. Greed is largely invisible to us. When's the last time you heard anyone in your church or small group say, yeah, the main thing I wrestle with is greed? We have become an increasingly materialistic focused society. Now, when you add on to that the historical causes of disintegration that we have that we've never resolved within our political economies, you see that we have a huge problem. Now, I, I want to move, I want to start to transition from this into that parable we just read because if I keep expounding all of these things to you, we're going to end this room feeling depressed rather than motivated for the course of mission. But let me just say one last thing very quickly on that last point too about political disintegration. Another very well-known author who's won a huge number of prizes in the last 30 years is a Japanese author by the name of Ishiguro. Now, Ishiguro wrote a lot of famous novels like Remains of the Day, which was made into a film with Anthony Hopkins. You may have seen that. And he publishes about a book once every five to seven years. Now, his latest book, The Buried Giant, was hated by almost every critic on the planet. It was one of his first books not to be nominated for multiple prizes everywhere in the world. And if you read the reviews, you'll come to the conclusion it wasn't even worth reading in the first place. But Ishiguro's book, The Buried Giant, I think is possibly the single most brilliant novel I've read in the last two years. Here's why. In The Buried Giant, Ishiguro tells the story of this elderly couple. And the elderly couple have lost their memory, not through age, their whole society has lost its memory. No one can remember back more than a few weeks ago. Everything after that is blurred. They can't even remember if they have children, but no one else can remember if they have children either. So this couple set off on a quest to recover their memory. And as they go off on this quest, they're joined by a young boy and a warrior and an old knight on a horse. And they set off to discover the source of national forgetfulness. And towards the end of the book, they finally find it. They finally find what is causing them to forget. And now they have the question, do we help our nation recover its collective memory or not? And as they're debating it, the warrior who is with them says this. He says, if you end the state of forgetfulness and allow people to recover their memory, quick-tongued men will make ancient grievance rhyme with current complaint and the result will be war and mayhem. Quick-tongued men will make ancient grievances rhyme with current complaint, and the result will be war and mayhem. In the United Kingdom right now, there are six independence movements. As everyone traces back their cultural heritage, if everybody gets their own way, in a couple of years' time, the United Kingdom will be six different countries, not one. Our ancient grievances, the things which divided and split us and set us against each other to the point that we were willing to kill each other, as we remember and retell those stories with an incapacity to reconcile and forgive, mean that we're simply in the process of tearing ourselves apart. And there isn't a single country I've visited in the last four years in which this isn't an issue. I think the only country where this would be exempt from this would be Singapore. And Singapore is so tiny that it can't possibly split itself into anything smaller unless Sentosa Island decides it wants to become some kind of, you know, Disneyland Inc. or something all by itself. It's just simply not possible. It's just too small. But everywhere else you'll see this force at work. 
Now, it's for all of these reasons, these eight reasons, that I've, as I've been traveling around the world for the last few years, if I ever have the privilege of speaking with a government in a closed session, which I sometimes get to do just to sit down with the cabinet and just listen to them without anyone else there so they can ask whatever they want, or whenever I sit down with major business leaders to talk about where they think the globe is going, all of them are struggling with these issues, and all of them, to a person, will say the biggest single problem we have right now is this global disintegration. There is no possibility for reconciliation. Now, what does it tell you that we live in a world in which every political leader I've had the privilege of meeting in the Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, East and West are all asking the same question? And not only that, major business owners around the world are also asking the same question. I was with a financial group a few weeks ago speaking with a guy who heads up a, a banking group that's got about $20 trillion under management. That's a significant part of the global economy. And as we were, we were meant to meet together for an hour, we talked for two. And as we came towards the end of the second hour, he said, I see absolutely no hope for this world whatsoever. Ten, more, 10 to 15 years, and we're going to destroy each other. Billions of people will die. But there is a message that speaks to this problem. If you can't, if we can't learn to preach the gospel in a world that is disintegrating and feels that reconciliation and, and forgiveness is impossible... If we can't relate a gospel to a culture that's asking that at almost every global level of its existence, then we have a problem as a church. This plays straight to the sweet spot of why we're here. The gospel we have is a message of reconciliation. It was entrusted to us as if God were making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. It is the most incredible message we have and it brings an enormous amount of hope. Now, the problem is, as we say, but Michael, you look at all of those problems and they're so big, what can I possibly do? How can I possibly deal with all of those things? And the good news is you don't have to deal with all of those things. One or two of you in this room may be called to think and say something very directly into them. But there's the heart of it that's behind all of it, which is to do with our sinfulness, into which we're all qualified in this room to speak. All of us have something to say. All of us have a message of hope to bring into a world which is collapsing at all of these different levels. And mission has never been easy. It has never been easy. That's the subject matter of that parable that we were looking that had, we had read to us so well a little bit earlier. There, we, now we jumped in with the reading where the chapter, well, the, where the subheading divisions occur in Scripture. But actually, this story starts a few verses earlier. Jesus is sitting eating in the house of a Pharisee, and someone's healed. That caused a lot of interest. And then they start talking about having a banquet, and Jesus talks about the fact and says, "Look." If you throw a banquet, don't invite the important people. They'll repay you. Instead, invite the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. They can't repay you, but at the banquet of the resurrection of the righteous, you will be repaid. So they are literally talking about the end of the world. Jesus is saying, live your life in such a way so that when the end of the world comes, you will be repaid by God himself. Not by the people you help, but by him. And when someone hears Jesus at the table say this, they say, blessed is the one who will eat at that feast in the kingdom of God. Well, of course, you would be blessed. You would be supremely happy and filled with joy to find yourself eating at that feast on the day of the resurrection of the righteous in the kingdom of heaven. Well, you don't look that excited about that, but <laughs> believe me, you should feel excited about that. We so often don't think about these things. I remember once te teaching a group of theological students in Oxford. And I asked them, what happens at the end of the world? And they said, well, you know, there'll be judgment, yes. New heaven, new earth, yes. And I kept asking, what else, what else, what else? 
After five minutes of me asking what else, there was quiet, and then someone said, a banquet. Now, for me, as someone raised in the Middle East, the banquet, the food is the first thing you think of, not the last. But here's the question, what kind of banquet? And of course, because they're bright, one of them goes, oh, a wedding banquet. And what happens before a wedding banquet? A wedding. Imagine you were having coffee with someone in the coffee shop just down the road from here. You're about to order a second cappuccino and they look at their watch and they go, oh my goodness, is today, is that today? Is it the 28th? And you say, yes. And they go, I have to go, I'm getting married now. The wedding started half an hour ago and they run out the coffee shop. What would you make of this person? Surely there's something wrong with them. When someone falls in love and they're looking for getting married, it doesn't matter what you try to talk about. That's all they want to talk about. You ask them about the weather, you end up talking about their wedding. You, you ask them about their family, you end up talking about their wedding. You ask them about politics, they'll say, yes, isn't it terrible what's happening, but I'm so looking forward when I get married. You know, it's awful, it's sickening. You can't stop them thinking about it. What on earth does it say about the life of the church when we ask what happens at the end of the world, the very last thing we remember is there's going to be a wedding banquet. So they're talking about the feast that will be held on that day. When God returns, there's a resurrection and God holds a feast. So Jesus then replies, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. So they've just been talking about the resurrection of the righteous. Someone says, blessed is someone who will eat at that feast. And now Jesus tells the story of a man who hosts a great feast. Can you see the connection? I mean, this is a very obvious parallel. This is not a hard parable to interpret. They've been talking about the great banquet at the end of the world. Someone says, blessed is the man who eats at that great banquet. Jesus says there was a man preparing a great banquet. I mean, hopefully the parallels are obvious. Now notice that the invitations and the preparation of the banquet happen simultaneously. Okay, you can see that in verse 16. He's preparing the banquet and invites many guests. Why do you do that? Well, the answer for that is simple. In the ancient world, there's no form of refrigeration. You need to know how many people are coming and you prepare enough food. Now, I can't speak to Australian culture. I actually understand there are some of you here walk right across Asia. But in most parts of the world, hospitality is central to the culture. If someone comes to eat at your house, the last thing you want to do is run out of food. You can go to incredibly impoverished communities that some of you will have experienced and they'll bring out the very best for you and they'll keep feeding you till you can't eat anymore. So as the invitations go out, would you like to come, and people say yes or no, the preparations, the two happen simultaneously. The host is banking on his guests coming. If they don't come to eat, the food can't be kept for another day. It's either eaten or it's thrown out to be eaten by the dogs. But either way, it will be eaten. So what happens next is remarkable. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, everything is ready. Notice, these are the people who had been invited. The servant isn't going out into the community saying, would you like to come at this point? The servant is going out into the community saying, hey, you said you were coming, dinner is ready. So they've been asked a few hours before, now they're being told to come. Now they're obliged to come. Now, in most parts of the Western world, the longer the gap between the invitation and you going, the more obliged you are to come. The shorter the time, the less. In other words, if you saw me today and said, Michael, would you like to have dinner? And I said, yes. And then a few hours later, I changed my mind. 
Culturally, in most Western cultures, I can ring you very easily and say, you know what, I know I said, yes, I was coming an hour and a half ago, but something's come up. Is there any way we can do it next week? And culturally, that's fine. However, if you invited me to dinner three months ago and I said yes, and then on the day I didn't really feel like it, it's very hard for me to get out of that invitation. In a sense, I'm, I'm obliged to come. Now, in most Middle Eastern cultures, it's reversed. You can promise to go to something ages in advance that means nothing. But if on the day you're invited and you say yes, you have to go. Everything's been prepared, all the food has been prepared, you've now expected to turn up. Not to turn up is a big deal. So the servant is going to those who said, yes, I'm coming. He's ringing the, don ding -a -bell, the dinner bell, ding, 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 dinner is served. And they all begin to make excuses. So do you understand the significance of this? They had been invited, they had said yes, now their dinner is ready, now they're suddenly saying, actually, now I can't come after all. The first one says, I've just brought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Now, what do you make of this excuse? Imagine I was to say to you, yeah, I know I said I was coming to dinner, but I've just brought a car. And I don't know if it's a Volkswagen or a Bentley. So I'm just going to go and look at it. I mean, what would you make of that excuse? There are only two possibilities. Number one, I am a moron. <laughs> that word moron comes from the Greek moron. It means to be a fool. <laughs> we translated it from the Greek into the English, moron. So either I'm a moron or I think you're a moron. Because it's not even possible to do what I've just described. Between being invited to dinner and saying yes and buying a field, that's simply not legally possible. It's not like you can click on the internet and say, yes, I want this piece of land and transfer the money. That whole process takes a long time. First of all, you don't know what the land is until you go and see it. You have to be shown it because there are no maps with it all neatly mapped out with lines around it. So you get shown the piece of land and you say, okay, well, where is it? And they say, well, you see that big rock over there? And you go, yeah. Well, that, if you draw a line from that rock and that tree stump over there, and then you follow the dry wadi bed that way, and then do you see that little ridge sort of running along there, and then it comes back up, that's the land. That's the only way you can see what you're buying. The buying and selling of land takes a lot of time. So someone saying, I'm going to... I'm going to go and look at it now. I know I said I was coming for dinner, but something else has come up. That would be like a boy saying to his teacher, yeah, I don't have my homework, the dog ate it. In a sense, I, it, it, it is, it's stretching the realms of imagination and possibility. Now, the second excuse that the guy gives is even more interesting because he says, I've just brought five yoke of oxen and now I'm going to go try them out. Now, you always buy oxen in pairs. You don't buy them one at a time, you buy them in a pair. You have a yoke that go across the back of the oxen. And the reason you buy them in pairs is if you're selling oxen, you have your animals and you have a small strip of land nearby and you have a yoke and you take two animals off, you put them on the yoke and you plow a line. Then you take one animal off, you put another animal on, you, you plow a line backwards and you see, do they carry the weight equally? Do they pull to the left? Do they pull to the right? You always sell them in pairs. So for someone to come along and say, yeah, I've just brought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to go and try them now. I mean... We thought we met the world's greatest moron in excuse number one. But we now have a new number one, ladies and gentlemen. This person's even more stupid than the first one. 
This is like the boy who says, yeah, teacher, I, I don't have my homework, the dog ate it. And the teacher says, but the excuse you gave last week for not doing your homework was your dog died. Do you know what I mean? I, it, it's just, this cannot possibly be true. It's patently false. The implications of this are enormous. People who've been invited to attend the banquet of the resurrection of the righteous, when they are told everything is ready, or to put it in another language, the kingdom is now at hand, they all begin to excuse themselves from going. And their excuses are the most pathetic, ridiculous set of excuses you've ever heard in your whole life. A third one said, I've just got married, so I cannot come. Now, I find it interesting that some people in the West, when commentating on this text, say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, if you're newly married, you're excused from going to war for a year. And so, you know, maybe he has a good excuse. The guy isn't being asked to fight a battle. He's been asked to dinner. There is a big difference. Not only that, he said yes. The tense of the translation that I have here in my NIV is correct. To those who had been invited. They had already been invited. The servant went and said, come, everything is ready. He's not asking them if they want dinner. He's saying, you said you're coming a few hours ago. The food is ready. So what this guy is actually saying here isn't so much funny as it is incredibly rude. He's saying, look, I know I said I was going to come to dinner, but I now have a different desire, and it doesn't involve you, but it does involve my wife. So I won't be coming to dinner. I'll be doing something with her tonight instead. And this excuse isn't funny. This excuse is shocking. The audience would be shocked to hear this. Imagine using sex as an excuse not to be there. But what kind of culture do we live in, ladies and gentlemen? How many of us, maybe even in this room, so locked into a world of porn and sexual addictions, we're excusing ourselves from the banquet of the resurrection of the righteous because there's something else we'd be rather doing. This is a shocking excuse. And whatever laughter was going on around the table beforehand, because I think they would have been laughing as Jesus gave the first two excuses, they're so ridiculous as to be funny. This is a conversation stopper. Now the servant comes back and he reports it to his master and the owner of the house became angry. Now isn't that interesting? Well of course the master of the house would become angry. Everyone who said they were going to come is now saying I've changed my mind, I'm not coming. And the, the, the excuses they have are ridiculous, they're insults, they're lies. And the master quickly turns to the servant and he says, you go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. You go find the crippled and the lame. They don't go proving oxen. They can't walk. You go find the poor. They don't go buying fields. They don't have any money. You find the blind. They don't get married. People are reluctant to marry them. You go and find them, and you tell them to come. And so now the servant is commissioned by his master to go out to his community and find everybody who was there and bring them in. And now the servant is beginning to get involved in this great evangelistic endeavor. As a matter of fact, not only does he go out to bring people in, after he's done that, he comes back to the master and he says, Sir, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. And the master, the servant is now getting 
to in tune with his master's heart. Having been told, hey, you guys who are ready, let's go. And they all begin to like make excuse. He then goes to a group of people who thought they had no invitation, says this invitation's for you and they start coming. And now the servant sees something. He walks into the room and he says, there's still space here. It's not full up yet. There are empty spaces. And he's looking to the master. Master, what will you do next? Have you caught that vision from God yet? There is going to be a banquet held at the end of this world. The greatest feast you've ever had is going to be provided to you largely by, I believe, cooks from my part of the world. (laughs) But there's still room. There are spaces to be occupied and there are people who have yet to receive the invitation. And so the servant is saying, Master, what are you going to do next? This is the most surprising turn of events. Now, those of you who live in Christianized cultures will understand the first part of this, what we've talked about so far. The second part's for everyone. There are parts of our world right now where people think that they have said yes to the invitation. They think they're holding in their hand some kind of religious ticket that they got from somewhere saying, I'm going to go. And they have no idea that whatever this piece of paper is they're holding saying, hey, I can go, they're actually excusing themselves from being there. And on that day, they won't be sat at that table. There's a part of this message that has to be preached to those who think they have a long-standing invitation to go to heaven. God's eagerly anticipating their arrival, but actually they're excusing themselves from attending. They have to meet Christ. They have to say yes to him. But there's this more general part. There's a part of the culture which doesn't know yet. So the servant says to the, the master says to the servant, you go out beyond now the community you go to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come so my house will be full now let's just say a historical note here this particular verse in Luke was used during the times of the Spanish Inquisition to justify a very interesting missionary strategy you compel them to come you make them come so they took it literally and they would find non-Christians and attach them to a rack And as they were slowly stretched and pulled apart, not only did they grow longer, but amazingly, 99% of the people who went in professed Christ coming out. So not only were they taller physically, but spiritually, they're now professing to love Jesus. Now, hopefully, you and I would have a problem with this missionary strategy. Because however we exposit that verb, that's not what this means. This is not about somehow exerting physical pressure to make someone believe something. The master knows he's asking his servant to do a hard thing. This is not going to be easy. If the excuses from within the community who knew the person were so great, imagine what the excuses outside of the community will be. You're going to have to make them believe. The master's saying to his servant, you go out and be compelling. Your words, your actions, how you live, you have to make people realize this is for real. This is for them. You need to change them. Go. Make them believe this is for them. There are all kinds of cultural obstacles that we can anticipate with this command. You know, in some cultures of the world, if you receive an invitation from someone much more powerful than you, your culture requires you to refuse. You basically have to say, no, 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 I'm not coming. You have no idea if your host means it when they ask you. 
This exists at multiple levels. I remember in my own family, my, all of my Greek uncles and aunts married um, English people. And the first one of my uncles to get married, married an English uh, woman. They moved back to Cyprus. And as the, when they're living there, they had a Christmas dinner. And what happens is you put all the food out and everybody takes a small amount of food because the host can't run out of food. That would be embarrassing. So what you do is everybody takes a little bit and then you're meant to invite, then you have to say to everybody when everyone's finished eating, would you like any more? And everybody says, no, I'm completely full. I couldn't eat another thing. And then you say for a second time, please have some more. And everyone has to say, no, 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 I'm full. The third time you say, please just have a tiny bit more. I prepared all of this. I, I'll be so sad if you went from here and left all of this food behind. On the third time, you go back and you have three to four times more than you had the first time round. Because everybody's had something now. Does that make sense? You have some idea how much is left. Now you can really tuck in. She was completely unaware of this. So at the end of the main course, she says to everybody, does anybody want any more? And everybody says, no, thank you. So she stood up and cleared all the food away. <laughs> Came back into a very silent room carrying a Christmas cake and wondered why everyone was sat there so silently. Sometimes the invitation has to be repeated multiple times for people to realize you mean it. There's a problem not just outside the culture, but is this even believable? Imagine you made this long distance and you're talking to someone now and saying, he wants you to come. And they'll be saying, well, who is this person? How, why would they be interested in me? This happened a long, long way away from where I am. What's it possibly got to do with me? You're going to have to make them explain that this invitation is meant for them. It's real. It's not made up. It's not a fantasy. You're not crazy. It's actually true. It may sound unbelievable, but actually, no, it's true. It's real. And it is for them. In Luke 14, we begin to see something about Jesus Christ's own vision for mission. He already anticipates some of the problems that he knows we're going to have. There'll be those who begin to make excuses, and what they say is utterly ridiculous, and we're not to be discouraged by it. We're to keep going out to that community again and again and again, issuing the same invitation over and over and over. We're going to have to somehow make people believe that this is real and is actually intended for them. Now, the parable finishes with some very strong imagery. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will even get a taste of my banquet. Now, the imagery is very strong because after you have your invited guests come, even the uninvited guests get to eat some of the delicacies because you can't keep the food, you just distribute it everywhere. And after that, whatever's left, you throw out and the dogs eat it. So even the dogs taste it. This is not the wholesale rejection of that first community. This is a rejection of those within that community who absolutely refuse to come. And Jesus is very clear. There is coming a time when you will realize the extent of what you have done, and there's no way back from it. But the thrust of this, the thrust of this parable in terms of us, you and I sitting here, is we're his servants. He's the master. He's putting on the great banquet. There's still room at his banqueting table. He's sending us out into this world. And have you seen the room that there is? There's space. I had the huge privilege while I was um, speaking last week, spending some time with some Christians there who, whose families have literally been terrorized by Boko Haram. In some cases, they've even lost close family members. They're living in a situation where the government isn't protecting them, where people are just disappearing and there seems to be no response, justice has collapsed. And the question is, what do we do? 
What do we do? And the question has to come back to us. Do we believe that we're being called to go and reach even people like that with this gospel? Or are we going to write some people off and say they can never return? I'm actually beginning to wonder if in the Western world we've concluded that evangelism is so difficult it's not worth even trying anymore. Which is why we have to keep hearing again and again from the lips of Christ about, his, about the fact that he has a mission for his church. And he wants us to go. Several years ago, um, I was um, speaking in an Islamic country and I got talking with this guy there and this guy came to me and he said, Michael, I want you to pray for me. He said, I want to reach the people in my country. They're destroying my country. He says, they're literally blowing it up. So I prayed for him. Well, the next year, some people from his country traveled over to London and blew themselves up on buses and on the London underground system and caused all kinds of havoc about 10 years ago. Shortly after that, he rang me and he said, Michael, um, I have an invitation for you. I said, what is it? He says, well, I enrolled myself in a madrasa for the last year to study memorize the Quran and study the Hadith and learn Arabic. He says, I've been, I'm their best student. I said, that sounds interesting. He said, it's the same school that trained the people who did what they did in London a few months ago. That got my attention. He said, I've told them all I'm a Christian. I said, you did and you're still alive? He said, brother, they're very angry with me. I said, why didn't they kill you? He said, I gave a speech to the entire student body in which I said I'd come back with a friend and explain to them why what I'm telling them about Jesus is true. <laughs> So I said to him, who's going to do that? And he said, you are my friend. Then he said, brother, he says, I have eight, six friends who are part of the police force. They have machine guns. They will come with us to protect us. I said, we're speaking to a room filled with suicide bombers. Eight, six men with machine guns isn't going to help. Well, we talked and prayed about it and decided we should go. And so now, here we are, we take one guy with a gun who stays in the car, so when the car's parked outside and we're inside, they can't put a device in the car. That seems sensible. And we, first of all, we went to the wrong door to the compound that we'd been invited to come to, because when we arrived at the compound and they opened the doors, there were body targets at one end and guys with AK-47s at the other, and they were doing target practice. And I turned to my friend and said, have you arranged for me to speak open air, or what is this? <laughs> When they found out who we were, they said, no, 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 you need to go half, a, we went half a kilometer down the road. The front half of it looked like a school, like a primary school. And so we went into the school and there were about 50 people in a room that's not even as big as this stage, so it was packed. And as we got to the point of explaining about Jesus Christ and the cross and what actually makes forgiveness possible and how we can be reconciled to God, the, the, peop the people on the front row were about as far, as far away from, if I stand here, the front row the, on, would have started just here, just over an arm's reach away. And in the room of 50 people, there were about 15 women and 35 men. Now, the women, all you could see were their eyes. Everything else was covered up. And when I began to explain about the cross and some of them started to cry, I, I clocked their body language, which I shouldn't have done, and recognized they were crying. So now they had to pull the veil over their house, over, over, over themselves completely, so you couldn't even see through the tiny little slits where their eyes were. And as I looked around the room, quite a few of the men were crying too, but I've often realized this happens when I preach. A lot of people cry, normally in desperation. <laughs> as soon as I finished speaking, 
the head of the madrasa stood up at the back and he said, well, it's totally different for us. If you respect us, we may respect you. But if you don't respect us, you leave us no option. We will kill you. And I said, it is very different. I said, because in the Christian faith, we're going to be saved through this free offer of grace that Christ made for us through the cross, through his death and resurrection. It's totally different. And at this point, everyone else in the room stood up. And so now the guy at the back of the room, because everyone stood up and the room was so small, he couldn't get to the front. So I sort of tried to force my way through the crowd to get to him. And you'll understand the significance of this if you know anything about these cultures, because the first person to come up to me publicly was a woman. And although I couldn't see her face, she said to me in perfect English, this gospel is the only hope for our nation, and dropped a tiny little ball of paper in my hand. And by the time I got to the back of the room, my hand was filled with tiny little rolled up pieces of paper and what people had done is they'd torn off a tiny strip of paper, written down their cell phone number, rolled it up into a little ball, just dropped it into my hand. Now you think, I remember being encouraged by this, and by the way, this is these converted Taliban, they make excellent church planters because they didn't join the Taliban to have an easy life. So the same commitment they had there they now bring but for very different purposes. So I gave all these pieces of paper to my translator who's part of the underground church in that country to follow them up. And as we're driving away back to the city we were staying in, it's a one and a half hour drive, his phone rang and after he got off the phone he said, they're very angry with you. I said, they are? He said, yes. He said, that wasn't meant to happen. I said, what are you gonna do? He said, I'm gonna drive back and see them. I said, are you sure? He said, I, I have to go and see them. I got on my knees, I, I literally, I stayed on my knees praying in my room for him and after five, six, seven hours, I still hadn't heard from him and I began to fear for his safety. So I rang him only to discover he'd got home hours ago and was having dinner with his family. <laughs> and I said, what on earth? I said, why didn't you ring me to tell you you were okay? He said, well, of course I'm okay. I said, what do they say? He said, they're not happy. I said, well, you told me that before. I said, what have you done? He says, I have invited them to come and hear you speak tomorrow night. I was like, <laughs> I said, this is not a good idea. Well, the next night, we're in this room. It's a dinner event. And there are large round tables and people sat around the tables. And this group come into the room and everyone knows who they are. We even had the head of the army in the room and even he moved out of the way when they came in because this is one group of people you don't want to upset. And there was literally like a parting of the crowd and they came all the way down to the front and they sat on the table on my far right. And so now I have to come up and speak. And one of the guys who was on the table, he should have had his back to me, but he picked up his chair and he turned it around, so he was looking straight at me. And I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase death stare before. I've never experienced anything like it before or since. It was almost tangible. It was like you could touch it. It was like there was this beam of hate coming from him to me. It was so distracting. It was causing me, I, could, I was having trouble breathing while I was preaching, so I actually ended up turning like this and turning my head like that. So as I preached to the room, it made sense if I was looking natural, I was that way, just to block him out so he wouldn't throw me anymore. And after we'd finished explaining about the cross, I thought there were two sets of steps off the platform, one to my right and one to my left. And I can remember, I'd already made up my mind halfway through my talk that I was gonna pick up my Bible and go left. And that's exactly what I did. As soon as I finished speaking, I picked up my Bible and I started walking off to my left. And as I got towards the stage, I just felt God say to me, Michael, you're a coward. And I just stopped in my tracks. And I turned around and walked back the other way down the steps, straight up to this man, held up my hand to him and said, it's nice to meet you, and was immediately convicted for lying, because I didn't believe that at all. 
And he took one step towards me, said, Michael, listening to this gospel is like watching flowers grow in a barren field. And then he threw his arms around me and wept. Who is it who you think is beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel that Christ has given us and sent us out into the world is the most incredible thing you can possibly imagine. He is inviting us. He's asking us to invite people to the banquet of the resurrection of the righteous and there is still room. All of those spaces have yet to be filled. He is looking to his servants, to you and me, to go out and issue that invitation in his name. And as you do that, you will see some of the most surprising things you can possibly imagine happen in this world. Jesus Christ never promised a safe return when we go out on a mission like that. But he did promise that if we're walking with him, that's the only safe place to be. And he will take us to those he has to take us to. And whatever it may cost us, when, as that gospel takes root within that culture, those people will then take it on to others that we ourselves will never be able to reach and see. And that's the commission he's giving us now. That's what he's asking of us. Why don't we pray together? Father, we want to thank you for this conference we've had together, which is literally about you. It is literally about you, the, the air that we need to breathe, the spiritual life outside of which we have no hope and no life. Lord, you came into a world which was dead in its sin and transgression, and through your death and resurrection have breathed life back into it, and Lord, it's such a joy and a privilege to be part of that. Lord, as we sing about it, Lord, would you refresh our hearts and remind us again of the incredible truth and the wonder that there is in knowing you and walking with you. And Lord, at the same time, Father, will you open our eyes to the challenges which are around us and begin to equip us to respond to them. But Lord, far from being overwhelmed, Lord, by the myriad of challenges that we see, Lord, problems on a scale that are sometimes even hard to imagine or even get our own hearts and minds around. Lord, Father, we pray. Lord, may we be faithful to your call. Lord, will you send us, Father, where you want us to go? Lord, may we be like that willing servant who came before you. Lord, may we catch something of your heart and your vision and realize that there is still room. Father, may we respond, Lord, to your call to, to go out. Father, may we take that invitation, Lord, faithfully, Father, wherever we go. Lord, whatever hardship we may endure and rejections we may face along the way. Father, will you remind us again, Father, of this royal commission that we've been given. Father, may we delight in you. And Father, will you give us that great joy, Father, of seeing some say yes to you. Lord, that we may pray with them that when we get there, Father, there will be people that we already know. And Lord, we pray, Father, more than anything else, Lord, that we may know that endorsement from you. Lord, that when we come to join you at that banquet, that you will say to us that we were faithful in our service of you and we did well before you. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.